On August 31, 2010, Lake Crystal, Minnesota police received a 911 call from a panicked woman named Jennifer Nibby who proceeded to tell them that someone had just broken into her home, cut her with a knife, then shot her husband dead. Obviously, police arrived on the scene as a matter of urgency, and when they did, they found the body of 26-year-old James Nibby dead from a gunshot wound as his wife had described. However, as time went on and more details about the story started to emerge, investigators became suspicious of her original story of someone breaking into their home at night. This is Monsters. Jennifer Nibby was born Jennifer Gilman on April 14, 1977 in Lake Crystal, Minnesota. From a young age, she'd always been popular on account of her outgoing personality and her good looks. As her cousin Carrie Erickson would later put it, quote, Jennifer had a lot of friends from all ages. It didn't matter if it was from our grade or younger or older. She fit in really wherever she went. She was very popular with the boys. She was very, very beautiful. Of course, that interest that boys had in her led to the young woman having a number of sexual partners by the time she was approaching adulthood, with one of them getting her pregnant when she was still just 16 years old. But while to some young girls such a thing would be a disaster, for Jennifer it was nothing less than a blessing as it gave her the opportunity to be a mother just as she'd always hoped she would be one day. So, dedicated to being the best mother she could be, she decided to stay in school throughout her pregnancy so that, once the baby was born, she'd be able to pursue a qualification in nursing, something that would allow her to financially support her son during his youth. And ultimately, she achieved that goal while he was still an infant, with her getting a job as a nurse at a local surgery center soon thereafter. Sure, that left her with little free time to herself as her days were pretty much fully divided between work and looking after her child, but that was just a single mother's burden to bear as far as Jennifer was concerned and she had no problem with such a reality. She worked so hard to give her and young Brady a good life that by the time he was school age, she'd been able to save up enough money to buy them a house in a rural area of Blue Earth County, Minnesota. As great as things were going for Jennifer and her son, there was one thing she was missing out on as a result of her circumstances, and that was the ability to meet a man and go out on a date. After all, she had so little time for herself, there was just never the opportunity. But that would thankfully change when in 2007 she met 24-year-old apprentice electrician James Nibby, with the chance meeting between them occurring when she was called out to a medical emergency his brother's girlfriend was undergoing. As it was put by James's sister, Leslie Johnson, when later asked to describe the meeting, quote, My younger brother, Jason, had a girlfriend at the time that went into diabetic shock, and Jim had discovered her. And so Jim called 911, and Jen came out on the ambulance call, and that's how they met. But who was James Nibby? Well, he'd been born on October 30th, 1983, in the Mankato area of Blue Earth County to parents Mervyn and Karen, and was by all accounts someone who was very well liked by everyone around him. The kind of person who could always warm up a room with a simply goofy smile. 
To them, he was known as Jim, a young man who loved the outdoors more than anything else as it allowed him to indulge in passions such as hunting, fishing, and kayaking. When he wasn't engaging in any of those pastimes, he could usually be found doing things like either playing golf or volleyball, tinkering with one of the various different DIY projects he had going on at any given time, or simply looking after his beloved dog. That said, it wasn't all just about having fun for Jim as he knew he needed to get a good job if he wanted to be able to provide for the family he hoped to have one day. So that was why after graduating from Lake Crystal Welcome Memorial High School in 2002, he enrolled himself at Minnesota West Community College, Jackson Campus, where he began training as an electrician, all while he was simultaneously working part-time as a handyman. And by October of 2005, he had fully completed his studies, allowing him to get a job as an apprentice electrician for Maple River Electric. Yes, things were going well for Jim at that point, and his future was already looking bright. But it was about to get brighter, at least as far as he could tell, because it was two years after that that he met Jennifer Gilman on that fateful night in 2007, where the pair quickly realized they had a lot in common. Needless to say, then, it didn't take long for them to start dating, with them frequently using their time together to share in their joint passion for hunting. Sure, Jennifer was six years older than Jim and had a child already, but that wasn't an issue as far as he was concerned because he loved her dearly. In fact, it seemed that he was so madly in love with her that less than a year after their initial meeting, upon getting permission from her son Brady, Jim offered a marriage proposal to Jen, something the single mother quickly accepted without hesitation as she was just as crazy about him as he was about her. The pair got married on May 24, 2008. After that, they moved in together with Jennifer's son and prepared themselves for a long future together as a happy family. Unfortunately, though, the honeymoon phase that came with the early days of their marriage would eventually start to wither once it became apparent that their new life was not as storybook as it might have initially seemed. Even if they had each other, and that was a big part of what kept them going, something the couple didn't have was a lot of money. And on the outside, it seemed that a large part of the reason for that was because, still an apprentice at that point, Jim just wasn't bringing a lot home with him in terms of income. Sure, he was expected to earn a lot more once he was a full-fledged journeyman electrician, but that was going to take years to accomplish. So, in the meantime, Jennifer was often forced to work a second job on top of her already hectic nursing role simply so the family could make ends meet. Things got so difficult that at one point the pair had to take out a second mortgage on their home. And as time had gone on and money had become even more sparse, they'd started struggling to make payments on that second mortgage, leading to debt letters frequently coming in the mail. Not just on account of missed payments, but also on account of the high amounts they were racking up on their various credit cards. Perhaps it should come as no surprise that it began to take its toll on the Nibby's marriage after a certain point with family and friends of the couple soon becoming aware of it on account of Jennifer being so open about her ever-growing frustrations. As her cousin Carrie Erickson later put it, quote, She expressed to me that sexually he was getting irritating as far as wanting to grope her all the time, um, wanting to just get on her all the time. Jennifer expressed to me many times she felt like she was constantly giving, 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 and just wasn't getting back. It appeared that at least on a sexual level, Jennifer was beginning to lose interest in her husband as she'd begun to see him as a little more than a financial burden on her, someone who was more of a leech in her eyes than anything else. 
That's partly why she'd started looking outside of her marriage for sexual satisfaction, with her going so far as to start engaging in an emotional affair of sorts when she began sending explicit messages and photos to an ex-boyfriend. But that wasn't the only outlet she was using to try and vent her frustrations with Jim. No, she was also abusing drugs, prescription pain pills such as Tramadol to be precise. And the way she'd been getting access to those pills was by using her position as a nurse to steal prescription pads from the doctor she worked alongside and then forge their name so she could obtain the opiate she so desperately needed. Of course, while her addiction issues may have worsened, the more her marriage began to collapse. Jennifer's abuse of tramadol actually predated any problems her and Jim were having. That's right, she'd actually been taking pills for a long time already by the point she and Jim began arguing. In fact, it was actually her constant need to obtain prescriptions that had caused a lot of their financial issues in the first place. It was a vicious cycle that she'd brought upon herself and now in her drug-addled state. She could only blame her husband since it certainly couldn't have been her fault. No, to blame herself would have required a level of introspection Jennifer wasn't capable of anymore as long as she was so deep in the throes of addiction. And that addiction had now reached a level to where even those close to her were beginning to notice something was wrong as she'd lost a dramatic amount of weight over a short span of time. Some of her friends even worried she'd developed anorexia. Of course, anorexia wasn't the issue. Rather, it was a profound sadness with the way her life was going, self-inflicted or not. Jim obviously realized things were reaching a critical level too and that his marriage was at risk because in the summer of 2010, mere weeks before his death, he tried to cheer Jennifer up and reopen the lines of communication between them again by buying her a gift. A shotgun. Why a shotgun? Well, as mentioned earlier, the two were big fans of going out hunting. And while out there in the wilderness, rifles were usually the firearm of choice, Jim was also a fan of using shotguns, and so he felt that attempting to teach his wife to use one herself would be a way to bring them back together again, just as their initial shared love of going out hunting with rifles had helped bring them together in the first place. But Jennifer could not be swayed by any such attempts at rebuilding their marriage by that point. She had already emotionally checked out of the relationship and was even considering divorcing Jim. Of course, that was a lot easier for her to do given the fact her emotional relationship with her ex had by then progressed to the level of physical relationship, with her regularly going out to meet him whenever she had the opportunity so that the two could have sex in secret. That's not to say she still didn't have some love in her heart for her husband, however. According to her journal, a journal that would later be discovered by police, she believed Jim was ultimately a good man and that he only wanted the best for her and her son. But even if that was the case, she just didn't want to be with him anymore and she felt they'd grown too far apart by then. Of course, that still doesn't explain why she went so far as to murder him. After all, if she no longer wanted to be in the relationship, she could have easily just left. She even already had another love interest so she wouldn't be alone. So what could have led her to carry out such an act then? Well, the answer to that question has a lot to do with a life insurance policy she'd taken out under Jim's name a few months before he died. A $250,000 policy had been taken out and was payable to Jennifer in the event of her husband's death. And that money would certainly go a long way towards digging her out of the financial hole she'd created for herself and would also allow her to have a fresh start with her son and her new lover. 
So, now with all the pieces in place, the single mother began setting about executing the plan that had been swirling around in her head for some time, and that was to kill Jim. But first, she had to come up with a good enough cover story so that police wouldn't suspect her. And that was why she settled on the alibi of a home invasion, as to her it seemed plausible enough. That all led to the events of August 31st, 2010, as it was then that, at around 5.50 a.m., Jennifer woke up in a panic and quickly reached for the pills that were lying on her nightstand before the withdrawals could hit her. Then, once that was done and she started feeling a little more normal, she checked that her husband was still asleep, got out of bed, went to collect the shotgun he had bought her only weeks prior, then loaded it with a single shell all before bringing it back into the bedroom and shooting Jim dead while he was laying out cold on his stomach. After that, she called 911 and told the operator on the other end of the phone to come quickly as someone was trying to kill them. She informed them that her husband had been shot and that she herself had been injured too. On top of that, she also informed the person on the other end of the line that her 16-year-old son was in the house and was in grave danger if they didn't get there soon. So, understanding the urgency of the situation, officers raced to the scene and when they got there, they found Jim Nibby already dead of a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. As for Jennifer, well, she had knife wounds to her inner thighs there didn't appear to be any other injuries on her person. For Brady's part, he appeared to be okay, at least physically, and when it came to the alleged perpetrator of the crime, they were nowhere to be found. As Jennifer described it, she'd been in the bathroom getting ready for work when she heard a loud bang coming from the other room. At that point, she peeked through the crack in the door and saw that Jim had been shot. She described the shooter as being someone who was wearing all dark clothing with a nylon covering over his face. Wanting to try to find out who he was and hopefully get him out of their house, Jennifer told police that she ran out of the bathroom and attempted to go face-to-face -face with him, only for him to catch her before she could and aim the shotgun at her head. Luckily for her, though, when he tried to fire, the gun jammed, causing him to panic and instead grab her and drag her by the hair into the living room. There, he attacked her with a knife and tried to tie her up with a length of rope he'd gotten from the garage. But before he could completely restrain her, the family dog had begun barking, scaring him and causing him to flee. Though not before he told Jennifer, quote, You're lucky you're not dead. At that point, still in a state of shock, Jennifer said she got to her feet and went to her son's bedroom to make sure he was okay. There, she found him still asleep, so she ran over to his bed and woke him up, explaining what had happened all before calling 911. Brady appeared to back up that part of the story, at least. When later questioned himself, he confirmed that his mother had woken him up around 6 a.m., telling investigators he'd slept through the gunshot that killed his stepfather. Of course, there was no reason to believe he was lying about any of that, as Brady and Jim had by all accounts had a very close relationship with one another. On top of that, the shocked and confused state he was in didn't suggest he was telling any lies or trying to cover up for anyone. Nor did it appear like he was lying when he described what he did while he and his mother were waiting for the police to arrive, which was to take a 22 caliber gun of his own he had for hunting, load it up, and stand by the entryway to the house in case the intruder attempted to return. I, I, I want to make sure on a couple things, though, that are important, okay? Brady had nothing to do with any of this. No. Swear. I swear to God. No, I swear to and God. He doesn't know no. anything about it. He didn't help you set no. the scene up no. or anything. Oh you truly, God, no. you truly didn't wake him up until no. 
afterwards. I swear to God. Okay. I swear. I swear on my life. I swear. Well, I know. I, I believe you if you swear that it's the truth. But I do. I, but I have to ask you yes. that. I have to be clear on that. I do. Um, Bertie but, had absolutely nothing to do with it. He was so startled mm-hmm. when I went down there because I was on the phone with 911. When I went down there to ask him, he he was he was asleep. You know, okay. he was dead asleep, and I called his name twice, and then he finally woke up. You know, with the big eyes, like mm-hmm. the hell is going on, Mom? Right. You know. So his reactions, which they seem like they're all very normal and appropriate yeah. for somebody in that situation, yeah. that's all legit. Yeah. Okay. Brady knew nothing about it. nothing. Okay. Nothing. It was later confirmed that he was telling the truth when he said he called 911, with him not realizing his mother was doing that at the same time. So he had credibility in the eyes of the police. But even if he did appear to be being honest about those facts, there were other parts of Jennifer's story that already weren't adding up as far as the investigation team were concerned. Such as the fact that the cut marks on her thighs seemed to be a little too neat to have occurred during a struggle. In fact, they almost looked like they were self-inflicted. On top of that, there was no sign of a struggle having taken place inside the house as no furniture was out of place and nothing had been stolen. Nor were there any footprints on the floor despite it being muddy and rainy outside. As if that wasn't enough, it also seemed a little too unbelievable that the intruder would know exactly where to find Jennifer's shotgun and ammunition so easily, and then would be able to flee the scene without leaving any evidence of themselves having been there at all. Sure, Jennifer would later try to explain that latter coincidence away by saying that she left her gun outside after taking part in a target practicing session with Jim the night before, so the mystery man must have found it out there before entering the house. But while that could possibly explain such a flaw in her explanation, it couldn't explain any of the other issues with her story investigators had already found. It also couldn't explain the inconsistencies in her initially telling the sheriff that she'd heard the gunshot while in the shower and then later recounting to another deputy that she'd heard it while she was brushing her teeth in front of the mirror. So that was why, after she was taken to a nearby Mankato hospital to have her injuries treated and then released back out into the world, Jennifer was interviewed by police under the guise of wanting them to get as much information from her as they could about the man who allegedly killed her husband. In truth, though, what they were really trying to do was ascertain why so much of Jennifer's story didn't make sense and if that meant she had some involvement in what had taken place that night. In the words of Rich Murray, the captain of the local sheriff's department, when asked about the case, quote, It smells funny. It just doesn't, doesn't look right. There were some entries that indicated that she was not happy with her relationship with her husband Jim and that it was really hard for her to live as she was living because of the way she felt about this other individual. Those entries he was referring to, of course, would be the aforementioned diary pages written by Jennifer when she was at her lowest in terms of her marriage. The other person they mentioned was the ex-boyfriend, with that leading police to suspect she may have been having an affair. Something that would be confirmed when they began interviewing her friends and family, particularly her cousin Carrie, as she told investigators there had indeed been something going on with a man from her past. At that point, they put Jennifer under surveillance in the hopes they'd be able to catch her with her secret partner and confirm that that aspect of the story was true. In the end, they were able to do just that, when not long after, she was seen going to her ex-boyfriend's apartment and getting intimate with him. 
Of course, that was a blow to her credibility, but it wasn't the only reason for police to now doubt what the widowed woman was telling them. By going through her diaries even further, they were able to ascertain that she'd taken out a lucrative life insurance policy under his name just months before he died. But it wasn't only the fact that she'd taken it out suspiciously close to his murder that piqued investigators' interest. No, it was also the fact that she tried to cash it in the day after his death. Sure, it's possible that was an innocent enough act, but really you would have expected someone who'd just found their husband murdered in their home to be a little too preoccupied with processing the death to want to secure an insurance payout so soon. Then, as if that wasn't enough, there were also the entries in her diaries that showed that Jennifer had been stealing doctors' prescription pads to obtain the pills she needed to feed her habit, something that only made her look all the less reliable. Things weren't looking great for the mother of one at that point. Even those around her were starting to grow suspicious as more and more details about the situation began coming to light. And those suspicions amongst the local community only grew further when it became apparent she was not only denying Jim's family request to bury him in a plot his parents had picked out, but that she was also withholding some of his belongings from them that they desperately wanted back on account of the sentimental value they held. Why would she do such a thing if not for reasons of spite? That was one of the questions the people of Mankato were asking now. Did she really hate her husband and his family that much? And if she did, was that hatred deep enough for her to have some involvement in his killing? People had noticed that she hadn't shed a single tear at his funeral. And while sure, grief affects everyone in different ways and her lack of crying didn't necessarily mean she wasn't still hurting inside. That, combined with everything else, was starting to paint a picture of a woman who was hiding a dark secret from those around her. But none of that was enough to charge her with anything. No, all police could do at that point was try to investigate the situation to the best of their abilities and hope that that led them towards the culprit, whether that be Jennifer or someone else. By then, they were fairly certain that robbery could be ruled out as a motive because there was no sign of forced entry into the house and nothing had been stolen. But that fact still left a whole host of unanswered questions as to what the reason could have been for the murder and who could have been the person behind it. That was why investigators began looking at other possible suspects too, one of whom had been suggested by Jennifer herself in an attempt to throw police off the scent. That suspect was none other than another old boyfriend of hers, a man known only as Paul. What reason did she give for Paul possibly being involved? Well, the way she described it, there was a good chance he was still in love with Jennifer and that, due to jealousy over Jim taking her from him, he'd killed him after breaking into their home. After all, he was familiar with their house and their family routine as he'd remained friends with his ex in the years that followed, despite the messiness of their breakup. So in that sense, it seemed plausible that he could have known when it best to appear to catch them off guard. And as if that wasn't enough, there was also an additional reason for him to want to hurt Jennifer. At least as far as she claimed, as she said she owed his family money and he was upset over her unwillingness to pay them back. When investigators went on to interview Paul, they were able to discount him as a suspect for the simple reason that he didn't fit the height and weight description of the shooter Jennifer herself had given them. On top of that, he had a somewhat solid alibi for his whereabouts on the night of Jim's death, with him being in St. James, Minnesota during the time of the murder. Sure, he technically could have made it to Mankato and back during that time period, so his alibi wasn't exactly airtight. 
But even with that going against him, police were pretty convinced he had no reason to kill Jim as his beef was with Jennifer and not him. Of course, he wasn't the only ex-boyfriend who she'd been in contact with in the weeks and months leading up to her husband's murder who might have had a reason to want to off him, though. There was also the man she'd been having an affair with. So, with little else to go on in the way of suspects at that point, the investigation team tracked him down as well and began questioning him as to what he knew or didn't know about what might have taken place. Unfortunately, though, he turned out to be a dead end, too, in the sense that he had an airtight alibi for his whereabouts. He'd been at home with his girlfriend and newborn baby at the time of the murder. That's right, Jennifer wasn't the only one who was cheating on a partner as he had one of his own back at home as well. And that no doubt made for some awkward conversations for him when he had to explain to her why police wanted to talk to him about the James Nibby murder. But while it isn't known how he managed to explain that all away to his partner, what is known is that he did confirm outright he had been seeing Jennifer secretly, with that being the first time either party had admitted to their adultery. With that information confirmed, police were able to obtain a warrant to search Jennifer's house for a second time as they wanted to find out if there was anything else hidden around her home which might confirm that she had been telling other lies when initially questioned. During that second search, they unearthed financial documents that seemed to show that the pair were in dire straits when it came to money, likely on account of Jennifer's tramadol addiction. Not only were the Nibbies way behind on their mortgage payments, but they were also dealing with mounting credit card debts too. And that, combined with the fact that Jennifer had attempted to cash in the life insurance policy she'd put out on her husband the day after his death, finally gave police what they needed to formally arrest her outside her office on September 10, 2010 and bring her in for further questioning. That came as a shock to her because as far as she was concerned, she'd thrown investigators off her trail already by pushing them towards her ex-boyfriend. As Paul Barda, one of the county detectives who picked her up later said, quote, She seemed to be maybe a little bit shocked that we were there, a little surprised to see us. Yes, as was becoming clear to her now, her ploy hadn't worked and instead she'd only managed to make herself look even guiltier. Even if they now had her in custody, police still had a task ahead of them to get Jennifer to confess to the crime they believed she was responsible for. Or at least initially it seemed like they had a task ahead of them. Thankfully though, that wouldn't be the case as it turned out because pretty quickly after being taken into an interrogation room, she recanted her initial claims that she was an innocent party and instead admitted to murdering her husband in cold blood with the same shotgun he'd bought her just prior to his death. How long had you been thinking about it, though, that night? I mean, like you say, you were up all night. I went to sleep at one point. Okay. Um. Um. Because we went to sleep, and I think by the time I actually fell asleep, though, it was like probably 12, 12.30. And then I woke up at 4.30 to my alarm. Okay. And I shut that off. And I had fallen back asleep. Okay. And then when it was 5.30, that's when I all of a sudden got into a panic and went. According to her, everything in terms of their marriage and the financial problems they were accruing had become too much to bear. So because of that, she felt the need to kill two birds with one stone, no pun intended, by ridding herself of not only him, but also by collecting the life insurance money in his name while she was at it. 
Of course, her drug issues played a role in that too, with her 180-pill-a-week habit being something she freely admitted to now. I have an addiction to prescription pain Okay. When did it start? I'm so ashamed. It's okay. I call prescriptions in for myself. I'm just... So ashamed. It's okay. A lot of people have things happen... A lot of people make mistakes. You're not the only person that's ever been addicted to prescription pain medication. It's okay. Was there an event that kind of started that off that precipitated that? Did you get injured or something or just I injured my ankle a while ago. And um it got worse after, while well, we were dating that first year, it wasn't too bad. And then it was slightly before I think we got married that I ended up becoming addicted to them and needing to have them all the time. Otherwise, I would go through withdrawal. Okay. In her own words, she would state, quote, the pressure of everything, the finances and the drugs, you live your day for that next fix. And it did appear that, now that everything had come to light and her crimes were on show for everyone to see, she began to feel real guilt over what she had done when she told the special agent with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension and the detective with the Blue Earth County Sheriff's Department who were interrogating her that, quote, it was horrible. It was horrible. Once it happened, I thought, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? I don't know how I'm going to live with this the rest of my life. I don't know. I took somebody's son, and I killed somebody's brother and grandson and uncle. I know Jim is in heaven, and that Brady will someday go to heaven, and if I try to take my own life, I won't be with them. She went on to explain exactly what had happened in the early morning hours of August 31st. <laughs> And I loaded one shell. And I came back into the bedroom. And there was a throw blanket thing on the end of the bed. So I took that and kind of rested the gun. Perhaps hoping to build up some goodwill for herself ahead of time, she described to police in detail how she carried out the murder, with her explaining that there had been no home invader. It had been her. Despite fully cooperating with the police at that point and admitting to being the one responsible for her husband's death, Jennifer still attempted to absolve herself of guilt to some degree when she claimed she had been compelled to kill him by the voices in her head. That's right, it would appear Jennifer was going to play the insanity card, perhaps in the hopes that it would get her out of going to prison. Whether or not that worked out for her in the end would depend on how much the jury at her trial believed her. While talking to the investigators, she had claimed that she had woken up in the early hours of the morning in a panic with voices in her head saying, quote, 
It's the devil. It's the devil. Not much else about the voices were mentioned in the interrogation, but for her defense, the story was that those voices had told her that her husband Jim was in fact the devil and that because of that she should go get her shotgun, load it up, rest it against his shoulder, and then pull the trigger once. Something she did. Then, after that was over, she'd taken a knife from the kitchen and cut her inner thigh so as to make it look like she'd been in a struggle with someone, all before then going into her son's room and waking him up to tell him what had happened. One thing Jennifer took great care to make clear was that Brady was not involved in the murder in any way. No, he was an innocent bystander and so should not be punished for his mother's actions. On top of that, she also took the time to note that she believed her husband was a good man and that he didn't deserve what had happened to him. But whether she felt that way now or not, the reality was that he was dead and she was the one responsible for it. The only question that remained was would she be found guilty of murder once she went to trial or would she be able to get off with something lesser on account of an insanity plea? The way her defense team saw it, it had been the former as she clearly hadn't been in her right mind when the murder happened. As a result of her drug use, her brain had been in such an altered state that she couldn't be reasonably held responsible for her actions. As they would argue while presenting the insanity plea to the court, she didn't even remember giving the confession to the police anymore. And she certainly didn't remember anything about what had happened on the night Jim was murdered as she was under the influence on both occasions. Perhaps unsurprisingly, though, the judge wouldn't buy any of that. And what's more, when a psychiatric evaluation was carried out on Jennifer not long after, she was found to be more than competent enough to stand trial. So the trial began on March 20th, 2011, with the prosecution deciding to pursue a first-degree murder charge as they felt confident they could prove the murder had been premeditated on account of both Jennifer's diary entries and the testimony of those who knew her. For the defense's part, however, they still believed they could get their client off as, even if she had been deemed competent enough to stand trial, the issue of her mental health at the time of the murder remained a crucial factor. Not just because of her drug use, but also because of the years of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse she had been subject to by Jim throughout their marriage as they now claimed. That's right, according to Jennifer's legal team, her being abused by her husband had been a regular occurrence throughout their life together, and that had led her to developing PTSD as a result, something that likely contributed towards her doing what she did. As one of her attorneys put it when he described said abuse to the court, quote, She indicated that it happened on at least a weekly basis, sometimes more. There was an act in the heat of passion that was caused by abuse, and post-traumatic stress disorder was part of the reason for the murder. One thing that hurt her claim of abuse, however, was that no such thing had ever been reported to the police while Jim was alive, nor were there any similar claims made in her diaries. Sure, that didn't necessarily mean no violence ever took place inside the Nibby household as many people who suffer from domestic abuse are too scared to report it at the time. But that, combined with the fact she'd already been deemed so unreliable in other areas, hampered her case more than it helped it. If that wasn't bad enough, her argument that her husband had found out that he was HIV positive at some point during their relationship and that was what had led him to take out his frustrations on her was deemed to be unproven as, while a screening test on Jim's body post-mortem did appear to show he had the HIV virus in his system, the medical examiner testified that it wasn't uncommon for those tests to give out false positives and so it shouldn't be taken as gospel. 
In fact, it should have probably been taken as an error as far as he was concerned because Jim had been tested for HIV during a health assessment carried out just two months prior to his death, and at that point he'd been found to be negative. James's family took that tactic from Jennifer personally as they felt he was doing nothing more than dragging his name through the mud when he wasn't there to defend himself anymore. As his sister Leslie would put it, quote, the public release of Jim's personal medical information in an effort to damage his outstanding character is painful for the family. We wish to remind you that it's important to remember that James is not the suspect in this case, and that false positives for hepatitis and HIV are very common in post-mortem testing. The Nibby family feels re-victimized yet again. So with the HIV excuse not working and only serving to anger those around her even more, Jennifer and her legal team took a different route when it came to their next attempt to get her off. That route was attempt to get the case thrown out altogether on the grounds of her not having had an attorney present at the time she was initially interviewed by the police. Can I ask some questions or no? You, you can, but but what we have to what we have to clarify a couple things, Jen. Just for yep. the record, is that you initiated and told the jail that you wanted to talk to us. Yes. So that's why we came in here. Yes. And met with you. And then the other thing is. For us to talk to you at all, we have to read your rights because you're in custody. Sure. So I do have to do that again. Okay. And if go there's ahead. a question you don't want to answer or something like that, you never have to. That, right. That's Maybe I haven't made that clear before, but I do have yeah. to go through that again, okay? For as hard as they tried, though, the motion would ultimately be denied as it was clear that Jennifer's rights had not been violated in any way. So for that reason, the judge allowed the trial to continue. The defense didn't have any more tricks up their sleeve at that point, but as it turned out, their claims of abuse combined with their argument that Jennifer had no memory of what had happened on the night of the murder due to her drug use had sown doubt inside the prosecution's mind. Enough doubt that they were no longer convinced they were going to be able to secure a win. Because of that, after a discussion with Jim's family, they decided to not risk Jennifer getting off altogether by offering her a plea deal, seeing them agree to drop the first-degree murder charge so long as she pleaded guilty to the lesser crime of second-degree murder instead. Realizing that was going to be her best chance of avoiding spending the rest of her life behind bars, Jennifer accepted the deal and on September 9, 2012, about a year and a half after the trial had begun, she was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Not that she would fully admit guilt, however, and she wouldn't fully apologize for her actions either. No, instead she would make a statement to the court in which she tried to justify her actions as those of a woman who was only doing anything and everything she could in order to survive a life of abuse. In her own words, she would state, quote, I understand the Nibby family not forgiving me. I understand that. I understand that I have caused pain. I loved my husband. I have protected my husband. I'm not here to damage his reputation or integrity. But I don't care how close you are to somebody. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Of course, Jim's family weren't happy about that. They would even publicly state that Jennifer's inability to do a simple thing like say she was sorry was disgusting and just showed the true lack of remorse she had for her actions. Still, though, even if she hadn't expressed any remorse, she was going to spend the next quarter decade of her life locked up, and that was the most important thing. Or at least it was to some of the family. To others, though, that still represented her getting away easy. While it was still a significant portion of what remained of her days being spent in prison, 
With her only being 35, there remained a good chance of her getting out at some point during her early 50s if her behavior was good as she'd be eligible for parole in 2027. Whenever she finally does get out though, she'll have to deal with the fact that money's going to be tight as, per the court's judgment as part of her sentence, she's been forced to pay for Jim's funeral costs, with that totaling $11,400. On top of that, a wrongful death civil suit later filed by Jim's family in 2014 also saw Jennifer lose and, as a result, be required to pay $220,000 in restitution to them. But that was the least she could do as far as they were concerned because she'd already done nothing less than ruin their lives. Jennifer had offered her first public apology following the results of the civil suit when she went on record in court as saying, quote, I would, at this time, like to take responsibility and accountability for my actions. To her in-laws, though, it was of little solace. They didn't even really believe she was being truthful about that if they were being honest. Again, in the words of Jim's sister Leslie, quote, The only tears that you have shed so far have been in court for yourself. You are not sorry that you took Jim's life. You're only sorry that you told investigators he was a wonderful person and didn't deserve what you did to him. But at least the family of James Nibby have been able to move on without feeling the need to get what they believe is a genuine apology. And the way they've done that is to honor his memory. While Jennifer continues to serve her sentence at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Shakopee, they've done everything they can to keep Jim alive in spirit, such as by having a memorial scholarship created under his name. The James Nibby Outstanding Character Award Scholarship, something that is given to a different student at Lake Crystal Welcome Memorial High School each year. That's not all they've done either, because on top of that, they've also fought to have a new piece of legislation passed. Jim's Law, something that aims to protect the families of victims whenever a victim is killed by their spouse. If it's passed, it would ensure that the families of the deceased have the rights to their property going forward, with that being an issue Jim's relatives had to deal with directly following his murder as Jennifer had tried to keep everything from them. One person who sadly won't get a chance to see such a law pass if it ever does, however, is James Nibby's father, as he's since died himself. He has at least been buried next to his son, so the two have been able to be reunited in death in that sense. As for the rest of the family, they continue to fight on, all in the hopes that Jim's memory ultimately outlives his killers. After all, no matter how much Jennifer may claim to have been subject to abuse during her marriage, all of the evidence points towards him being the real victim in the situation. And for that reason, his name should never be forgotten and his memory should never be left to wither. In the end, it appears this was never a situation where a woman was forced to put up with a violent relationship and did whatever it took to protect herself from it as she claimed in the courtroom. Rather, it seems it was a case of someone who dug herself into a deep hole of debt and despair as a result of her drug use, and who eventually sought a way out by murdering her husband in cold blood and collecting his life insurance policy. So, no sympathies need to be offered to her for the circumstances she finds herself in today, because in doing such a thing she took away the life of a good man before he had a chance to even achieve a small percentage of what he was capable of, including building a career for himself or becoming a father as he had wanted to do so much. Yes, there's a chance Jennifer really does feel guilty about what she's done at this point, but it really is unlikely that a monster like her would ever actually accept responsibility for her actions. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. 
Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.